All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse number one. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world, and ye and Excuse me. And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life? If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. It is so that there is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother, goeth to law with brother, and and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong, and defraud, and that your brethren. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord... Uh, we certainly do love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. And Lord, may your spirit teach us and encourage us and help us. Lord, help me to preach and teach exactly what you'd have me to say. May this help us and draw us closer to you. Meet the needs that are here. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray that even this evening they'd repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, first off, this message, let me start off this way, is preventative. Um, I know of no situation in the church that I am addressing whatsoever. Is we're going to be dealing with conflict and, and how to handle conflict. And, and right now I know just because of the size of the church, there's likely some conflict taking place that I have no idea of. So don't let the devil get in your mind right now. Okay, he's coming at me. So-and-so went to pastor. It didn't happen. All right? We're just, we're just dealing with this. The church at Corinth, as, as we know, had a lot of problems. This was a church that struggled. Look back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Paul gets into it immediately in this letter to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, by the way, we know well into the, going into the second century, this church was still struggling greatly. We actually have letters, I've, I've read them, they're interesting, written from the church, from the pastor of the church at Rome. Keep in mind, this is well before the Catholic Church ever existed. But written from the pastor of the church at Rome to the church at Corinth trying to help them. The pastor had sought for help. And it was, they, they, they constantly struggled. Paul here, and remember, we're covering this in First Thessalonians when Paul went down and started this church in Corinth. So he's writing this letter. He says in verse, uh, let's jump down here, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So with all the problems that this church is facing, this is where he starts. 
Do you understand that the, 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 the divisions that had arisen in the church and how much that sin, besides all the others he has to deal with, but how that sin he starts off with was damaging the church so much and causing other problems. He says in verse 11, for it, been, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Christmas and Gaius, lest any should say that I have baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. By the way, verse 17 settles the issue how baptismal regeneration is a false doctrine. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's a, that's a cornerstone verse, which there's other verses besides this one that settle the issue of baptismal regeneration that never came around to Constantine and the idea that somehow water washed away your sins. We're, we're talking 200 years after this. All right. But that verse settles it. It separates baptism from the gospel right there. But this church had a lot of conflict. It certainly is important how we handle conflict. Understand this, every single church is filled with sinful people. You want to try and find a perfect church, you're never going to find it. Matter of fact, if, if you make your choice, you just want to find what's wrong with this church, you'll find it. Piece of cake. You'll find it. We're all sinners right here. We are. You can find it. It won't be a problem. Instead, why don't you try looking for what's right? Uh, but all churches are filled with sinful people. So when that happens, guess what? Sin comes up and conflict comes up. It's going to happen. The church at Corinth was dealing with quite a lot of conflict, quite a lot of sin issues. Much, much more than what they should have been. This was an element, this was a carnal church that was genuinely struggling to actually follow God as they should. We're not dealing with a church that had a level of sin that was should have been normal for a church, by no means. No, there was a, a strong element of carnality that was in control of this church. They had pride issues, jealousy issues, fornication taking place, disputes. But one thing this book does help us with is how to settle disputes between Christians. How we as a local church deal with conflicts that arise between members. And because we're all sinners, disputes will arise. We're going to have that happen. I mean, I can hardly stand Bob Sites. If it wasn't for the book of Corinthians, I don't know what I would do. So disputes will arise. Disputes between members, parents, children, etc. Knowing what to do is very important. There's a, a, a funny story. of a, a, He's a French novelist. Um, I can never remember how to say his name. Dumas. Anyhow, he, he got into this conflict with a, with a really popular politician. All right. he, he gets into this conflict, a verbal debate's taking place, where it really escalates out of control. They actually decide to settle it. Um, what's that called when you, do, when you turn and you shoot at each other? A duel, a duel. Yeah, they, they're going to settle this thing with a duel. I mean, really, I'm not kidding. That's what they decide. But they were both considered excellent marksmen. This was their solution to it. We're just going to draw lots. Whoever loses has to shoot himself. They did that. Well, the French novelist, he, he, he lost. 
And so he's at the house. He gets the revolver out. out. His friends are there. It's gloomy. He heads into a private room. He shuts the door. And everybody's just waiting for it to happen. And sure enough, the revolver fires. His friends rush to the door. They open it up. And they see him there holding the gun. The gun's still smoking. And he says, gentlemen, the funniest thing has happened. I missed. (laughs) At least he had some sense about him. Now, the church at Corinth was not settling conflicts by coming down to a duel. But boy, what they were doing was incredibly wrong. I mean, they were losing any effectiveness they would have at all in the city of Corinth. Heading to the civil judges to settle disputes within the local church. Now, let me say this, by the way. Let me cover this right now so it's clear. We're not dealing with criminal moral issues. If that comes up in here, we go to the authorities. We're not dealing with moral uh, issues here where we have to go to the authorities. That's not the case. If that happens, that's what we do. And I have scripture to back that up in the book of Romans, by the way. All right? So the church of Corinth there again, they're taking people to secular pagan courts to, to settle their disputes. And we live in a day, don't we, where I'm going to sue. I know my rights. I'm going to sue. I mean, we have, remember what was that was back in the 90s, the first outrageous lawsuit that comes to mind was that guy who sued McDonald's and won because the coffee was too hot. He, do you know he won that lawsuit? Um, there's one I read here about a year or two ago. I don't remember when it was now, but no kidding. It was, it was a church member that sued his pastor. Now, I really doubt he won. I don't know the outcome of it. I can't see how he won. You want to know why? His pastor made him feel guilty every time he preached. Well, what do you say if you're on the stand as the pastor? That's my job. It's what I do. <laughs> Reprove, rebuke. Um, but we certainly live in an age where that happens. So how do we handle conflict when dealing with each other as a local church? So we're dealing with our church when problems arise. How do we handle those conflicts? Now, first off, let me, let me talk about this first. Consequences of not handling the conflict right. All right? Consequences. This is important because the consequences serve as a motivation and as a foundation for us to do right when conflict arises. So, first thing to bring up here is this. Number one, understand this. When conflict does arise, know this. It really, really can hurt a local church. It can lead to a split. We can have, we can have some, a small conflict that literally explodes and splits this church. We want to avoid that. We don't want division at that level. We don't want something that causes fellowship to break. We have to be careful. We, we can't be ignorant of the devil's devices and how he gets in here. We have people that commute in from the valley. We don't need two different churches in here. We don't need a valley church and an anchorage church. We're one church. That's what we are. We don't need division, the devil coming in, causing division between homeschoolers and Christian schoolers. We don't need that. We don't. We're one church. You recognize the autonomy of each family and then us as a church. We don't, we don't, we don't want those divisions to come in. And by the way, I, I've been a member of a church where that led to a split between homeschoolers and the Christian schoolers in a church. We don't want that. So understand this. The conflict, we need to handle it right because it can seriously damage us as a church. Secondly, another consequence, obviously it is a bad testimony before others. 
It's a, it's, it's a horrible testimony before others when we're not settling. It's not that we have conflicts will arise. That's going to happen. The, the issue comes in in how we handle those conflicts. When it's not done right, oh, it is such a bad testimony before others. Especially when you have new Christians. Uh, Jared was going to, he had to work, but he was going to try and get, he's not here tonight. But we have Jared who just came in. So excited, gets baptized this morning. Others who are new here, just getting baptized. Imagine if some petty conflict breaks out. What that, how that is before them. I mean, we're the ones who claim we have the truth, we know what life is about. Yet, Daniel sat in my seat. I mean, really, he's tall and lengthy. I should just trip him when he's going down the aisles, what I should do. His wife doesn't even like him. I mean, she comes to me all the time, so you know. She doesn't like you. <laughs> but seriously, something small like that, you think of, of those babes in Christ and how much damage you put in. It can cripple, I guarantee you it cripples that. It cripples our effectiveness with the gospel to soul and to others. Which, which is our mission. Our goal is to glorify God, but the mission he given, gives us is about giving the gospel out. It will completely cripple that. Another consequence. Makes it very difficult when you're in that, when that conflict is there and that's present. It's like the elephant in the room between certain parties or if the church is known before the whole church. All of a sudden, that also makes it incredibly difficult for the preaching of the Word of God to have an effectiveness on your heart. Because you're not ready for the Word of God to receive it in all meekness. You're not. It's not a magic book. It's not. You get too concerned, too busy with what the other person involved in the conflict, for God's word to be helped to you, it just, your mind runs. It'll also affect your own personal walk with God, your own devotions. It'll also affect that. And of course, it gives cause to the enemies, enemies of God to rejoice. You know, we can do a lot of great things here in Anchorage and we'll never make the newspaper. You let some major conflict get out of control, We'll be in the newspaper. So what do we do? What do we do when conflict arises? Because again, we will have them. We have people in here from all different backgrounds. Different personalities. Different economic classes. All of us here. All with sin natures. It can lead to conflict. So what do we do? Because we need to handle it correctly as a church when that takes place. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul directs us. Let's take a look here at the first six verses again. Paul is not a happy happy camper with this church. I like how he starts to dare any of you. Now, this is taking, what he's saying is already taking place. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world should be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? 
if you didn't have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. He's saying, you don't even need the pastor for these. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers? So within this text, he does help us to know what to do. And in the, and in the next couple of verses. He says, understand this. He goes, understand our position that we have in Christ, that one day we will judge the world and angels. Now, we do know this, that, uh, of course, according to Scripture, during the millennial reign, we will assist Christ when he judges, when he's in rule and reign. We'll have, we'll, have part in, we'll have part in that. That's what he's referring to right here. As far as the angels, I'm not exactly sure. We know the Scripture is very clear that God has a judgment for the angels that, that he does. But I, I would imagine this also pertains into eternally, into the millennial reign, with, our, uh, with uh, the, the place that God gives us as the height of his creation, even above that of the angels. Uh, it's, it deals with our rank. So he says, how dare you, knowing that this is what's given to us of God, based on our redemption, how dare we take our church issues before the world? One day we're going to be part of the Supreme Court. It's like the Supreme Court saying, squabbling, we can't handle this. Let's send it to the court in Anchorage. <clears throat> we have been given an exalted position, and Paul is reminding them of that. Therefore, his point is this, we are qualified, if we're spirit-led, genuinely saved, trying to serve God, we are qualified to judge these issues that come up. We don't need to go to a secular judge. Again, we're dealing with civil matters, not criminal cases. Romans 13, we're heading to the government when it comes to criminal matters. So what we do is we find one who is not involved, who is spiritual, to judge the matter, preferably the pastor. But as he said, as he points out here, and he's using some sarcasm here, by the way. Paul was great with sarcasm. He said, you can find out who's, least, who's, the, who's the least likely in your congregation for this. He is better, he's saying, than going to a secular judge. So you find one not involved, one who is spiritual. You look for one who has a close walk with God. And, it's, and, and again, always recommend the pastor for this. It doesn't, doesn't have to be. He doesn't, he doesn't set that in precedent here, but the pastor should always know of conflict taking place. And then here's the key to this, as we're going to see. Let's say that comes up. And you guys, we need to handle this right. We've got a conflict. You know, two brothers have a conflict. Um... And they said, we want to handle it right. All right, let's go to the pastor, somebody spiritual. And, and then what you both have to agree is this, is that we agree to accept the results. Regardless. That's determined ahead of time. We agree to accept the results. So that leads to the question then. Let's say a conflict arises. Let's deal with a real world, a very real possibility to take place. And I'm sure it has. Conflict arises, it's brought before me, and I always set, you guys have to agree, what I decide, that this does settle it. All right, we agree to that, good. Let's say I'm wrong in my judgment. That can happen. No doubt about it. That can happen. What do you do then? You suffer yourself to be defrauded. That's what you do. That's exactly what you do. 
We're going to see that here in our text. What is the decision, Ron? Verse 7 answers that. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why, why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong uh, and defraud, and that your brethren. What he says here is you have to be ready to accept wrong. Understand what is at stake. He said there does come a point where you have to suffer yourself to be defrauded. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll come back to this first one other time as well. Look at, look at this, though. Look at the example we have in Christ. Because this definitely goes against our, our, our Western way, our American way of think, thinking, actually, suffer yourself to be defrauded. If we're right, we want to be right. Here is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found, uh, found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And I'm going to come back to that. This is key when we're dealing with it, especially, let's just say the judgment's wrong. Let's just say that God has decided not to give me the wisdom of Solomon when it comes between judging matters. And I get it wrong. You suffer yourself to be defrauded. Judging him who judge, or trusting him who judges righteously. And we'll tie into this. Let me go on. When you do this, by the way, it completely diffuses the situation. But God is all-knowing. Nothing gets by him. Nothing. This is recognizing when you choose this path, you're seeing something greater than yourself. You're realizing the damage the conflict can do. You're saying, you know what? It's not worth it. I, I knew a, a, a pastor here recently. I won't bring it up. Some of you are aware of it. Pastor's a decent-sized church. Had to have a vote of confidence, basically, due to different things that had taken place. I'd even talked to him a, a week prior to it. He had the vote. It was in place. It's the morning of it. And, uh, but he was concerned. And not that it wouldn't pass, he knew that. But he did know there was a percentage that would not vote for it. And he decided, you know what? I don't want to split this. And resigned before the vote took place. Sometimes there's something more important than you being right. You have to see the damage that the conflict can cause. Seeing that the testimony of Christ is more important. Remember, I've covered this before when we were going through the book of Jonah. Faith is more important than your feelings. It is. Our faith, our testimony is more important than your feelings. It's more important than you just being right. If you're not careful, anger could set in so easily. And it's just, it's just a few steps away from bitterness coming in. Our testimony is more important than being right. 
And of course, this goes very much against the world's philosophy of looking out for you, getting what you deserve. And let's remember, we don't want what we deserve. And there is such a thing, this comes into it, how we respond. Say, well, but how, how do I accept that? Please remember what Christ did for you. Let's say it comes in and I get it wrong and you know it. Pastor's wrong in this. And uh, I, that, that's possible to happen. I doubt it. But that's where we have to trust the God who knows. That's where grace comes in for that other person. What is the two-word definition of grace that I always give? Because we miss it. What's the two-word definition? Unmerited favor. It's showing favor to a person who doesn't deserve it. It's what it is. Just like Christ has shown us. There could come a time when there's a fence and the conflict happens and, and you're trying to handle it right. But even, even if I get it, or if I get it right, the other person, whoever is wrong, you still have to handle this with grace. You have to be spiritual enough to say, okay, we need to handle this within ourselves. We have spiritual people here who can judge this. We're going to agree to leave the results with them and let it go at that. Be willing to show grace. There, it, there can arise a time when it is best to suffer yourself to be defrauded. In other words, that just means accept the wrong, knowing I'm in the right here, but I'm, I'm going to accept this wrong. Remember this, vengeance is never ours. It belongs to the Lord. Do you know how easy it is for him to bring out truth? Piece of cake. Let him do it in his time. Trust him. A non-Christian, Plato said this, listen to this, not even a Christian. He said the really good man will always choose to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. That's what we're dealing with. Because of where conflicts can go, the consequences of them, the wrong that they produce when a conflict isn't handled right. He said, the truly good man will always choose to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. Again, I brought this up before in a couple of different sermon illustrations, but it fits here. We had the work in Soho that was going. At the time, Brother James Abel was pastoring that work. I think this is after the, after the ordination and the organization of the church even. It was. I already organized it. already had the ordination service for Brother James. And... Uh, um, word got to me, James was going to resign, a conflict has come up, and I'm like, what's going on? So I head out there, and I call a meeting of the church, the church is going to meet, and so I'm sitting down with James, what happened? It was over flip-flops. I'm not kidding. It was, the conflict in the church was over flip-flops. They belonged to his daughter. Another uh, a small girl in the church took them as hers. He went to that family and said, those are my daughters. They said, those are, those are our daughters. We bought them at, at the island store. They belong to her. We don't know what happened to your daughter. And they said, no, those are my daughters. We want them back. And it just exploded. To the point he actually resigned. I quit. I took him aside first. We went right here. 
I said, even if you're right, you suffer yourself to be defrauded. Look what's taking place over stupid flip-flops. And I, I told him, you, you can ask, he, he, I hope to bring him here one day. You can ask him about that. I, I, I said, are you kidding me? This? This is what's going to split this church? Flip-flops? So we had the meeting with the church, and I took the flip-flops. They became mine. They were a little small, but they became mine. I did. I took the flip-flops, and I had a hard service at the church. Let them know on all sides how disappointed I was in how this matter was handled. That you saw the devil get his foothold in over something that is nothing. And I said, I said, I, I, I said my goal is we're going to leave her in a right spirit. But the truth is, I'm not ignorant. We all have flesh. Damage has been done. There's going to be need continued grace shown on both sides. Or, or the effectiveness of this church is done. Over flip-flops. And then I gave the flip-flops to James. I said, they're not your daughters. I said, those go in your study. To remind you how something so simple just about destroyed this church. Suffering yourself to be defrauded isn't easy. Let me give some keys for that and we'll go home. One, it takes humbleness. If there's one quality in the Bible that you see the Lord over and over stresses that the Creator admires in us, it's humility. The ability even to suffer a wrong. Look back again at First Peter. Let me come back to First Peter. Look at this. You say, I'm not going to suffer wrong. He did me wrong. He's going to know about it. All about you. Nothing about Christ. All about you. The Lord just loves that attitude and everything's about you. Look at verse 23 again. Christ, this is the creator here. Keep that in mind. The creator of the universe who suffered wrong, who suffered himself to be defrauded. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know what he did trust in? Same thing we trust in. When something is wrong, whether it's small or big, God is in control. You commit yourself to God, to faith in God. Lord, you know. See, what will help you sleep that night? One, because of the humble approach you have. And honoring God and putting your testimony first. But on top of that, you have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I'll trust you with this. Lord, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for the grace you've shown me when I've done wrong to you. Give me strength to do the same. You think the Lord will honor that? He will. He definitely will. So there's a humbleness, and then there's a faith in trusting in God's sovereignty. Again, we get so used to living the Christian life as if God is abstract. He's not. He actually knows exactly what's taking place. Trust Him. Even if the preacher gets it wrong. Which is highly doubtful. Third, you have to be able to live with the principle of forgiveness. Because to move on from that point, forgiveness has to be in place. 
It does. To genuinely forgive. I have a whole sermon on it. I, I preach it every couple of years. I, I, I just you know, developed it a couple of years ago, so I think I've only preached it twice. Probably another year I'll preach it again. But it deals with forgiveness and Joseph. Because I do believe Joseph is the greatest example of the key to being able to have that forgiveness about you. The guy had wrong done to him. His brothers sold him as a slave, wanted to kill him. He gets accused of a crime he didn't commit. I mean, incredible. All that he went through. And his brothers think, oh, no doubt, he is taking vengeance when the story is near the end. He's now prime minister of Egypt, the world power of the day. It's incredible. They're bowing before him. They realize it's his brother. And what do they panic? They, I mean, they panic. They realize he's going to come at us. He's in power. He has authority. We tried to kill him. We sold him as a slave. Joseph had forgiven him. Why? Because he knew God meant it for good. What he trusted in the entire time Ron was done to him, not just that day, this was how he lived, was God's sovereignty. God was in control. He trusted in that. He didn't understand why he was a slave. He trusted God. He'd never got bitter against God. He didn't. Little did he know how much he would need the experience in Potiphar's house. That would help him one day greatly when he's prime minister of Egypt. But he didn't know that was coming. He just had to trust God because he didn't know it was coming. There's things in your life you have no idea that's coming, but God does. So trust Him. And lastly, you do right, not because of the goodness of the other person or the per other person's moral character, but because of Christ and you desiring to walk with God. You do right, not based on, it's not this tit for tat. That's just pure carnality. You do right because you want to honor Christ. Listen, you put these things together, it does help you to suffer yourself to be defrauded. If that should arise. If that should come. But we're all sinners here, conflict can't arise. If it does, we handle it right. So that we don't hurt our testimony as a church. So that when we come in, between two parties, there's not this huge elephant in the room. Where they can hardly even look at each other. They think, wait a minute, did you look at me wrong now? What? Oh man, are they mad? Or what do I do? No, we, we don't handle it right. And that takes an element of a spiritual approach. If carnality is in control, you follow the way of Corinth. That's all you'll do. Because you're not about to suffer yourself to be defrauded. You're way too important for that. Let's not let pride and carnality control us. Let's concentrate on actually glorifying God, and that will help us handle the conflicts that arise. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, this message certainly was for Christians, but let me ask this this evening. Think about this question. If you were to die right now, where would you go? One day you will die. The Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die. But the verse isn't finished. It says, but after this, the judgment. So one day you will die and stand before Almighty God. And He will judge you. So please think about that for a minute. You're going to stand before the Creator. He's going to judge you.
He's going to use His law. And I assure you, just like me, you have broken His law. Every single person who is found guilty of that judgment is cast into a lake of fire. Something has to happen where you look perfect. That is why God became a man. That's why Jesus Christ was on this earth 2,000 years ago. To make you look perfect. To save you from judgment. To save you from hell. He lived a perfect life here on this earth in your place. He went to that cross to take your place in judgment. The Bible says, For God the Father hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He died to take your sin that He could give you His perfect life. Is there anyone here say, Pastor, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. I hear you right now talking about Christ. And I don't know for certain that when I died that I am going to heaven or I'm concerned I would go to hell. If that is you, would you just raise your hand and let me pray for you? You can put it back down. I, I, I won't call you out. Anybody here like that? Just put your hand up and then put it back down. I see some small children. If you put your hand up, I didn't miss it. I would need you to do it again. Anybody here like to say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm not certain of my salvation. All right, Christian. If the Lord worked on your, your heart tonight, you come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation. Work in hearts and lives, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's turn to page 516. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.